Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Masa A, Stages. The address is Bamidbar, Numbers, chapter 33, verse 1, through chapter 36, verse 13. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher, Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July 3rd of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol HaAmim, Venatan Lenu Et Torato. Baruch Ata Adonai Notein HaTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Parashat Masa A marks the end of the book of Bemidbar numbers. Masa'e, say Masa'e. And um, as you know, as the book closes, we find the people anxiously poised on the east side of the Yardin, the Jordan. And uh, they're wanting to finally leave this wilderness, the, the Hebrew word for wilderness is a Midbar, and enter into the promise that Hashem has made so long ago with their forefathers. You'd think by this point in time that the people would now be 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 spent from themselves. Now I know this is a second generation, but still, these were the kids who had come out of Egypt. And now they were adults. They had gone through the wilderness experience because their parents had disobeyed and broke faith with God, and so God judged them. And as a result of the judgment, their bones dropped into the desert. They didn't make it into the land. Even though God promised that he would give this land to them, they simply could not believe the word of the Lord. And as a result, they failed to apprehend the goal, that which God had had, had freely laid before them. All they had to do was apprehend it by faith. Let me just take a moment to pause and explain that this is a paradigm of salvation. We know the familiar passage that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever. This this promise of uh, salvation is actually made available to anyone, anyone, who would freely accept the gift of God. And yet the sad truth is, is that most people will reject God's offer most men will turn their back on God's free gift of salvation as offered only through Jesus the Christ. And that's a sad historical commentary, just like the sad historical commentary that we're reading about in Israel. God offered the land freedom, a paradigm of heaven itself. The type and shadow that the land is trying to explain to the people is the inheritance, the promise that's why we call it the promised land. God said to Abraham a long time ago, I'm going to give this land to you, Abraham. It's yours for the taking. All you have to do is place your trusting faithfulness in me. Trust in me and walk in my ways. And I will bring the land into your grasp. 
Your offspring will inherit it, Abraham. It will be theirs. But what did they do? As we read through the book of Numbers, as we get to the final end of this book where it details their wanderings through the desert, they could not believe God. It was not God's fault. God did everything. God gave them his words. His spirit was available. Oh, yes, it was. I can hear some people arguing, saying, no, 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 Ariel. The spirit wasn't available in the Old Testament. I beg to differ with you. Go back and read the passages again. His spirit was available. His words were available. Moshe was there to lead them. All they had to do was trust in God and be obedient to his word. And yet, time and time again, their stubborn hearts, their stiff necks, their closed eyes could not allow them to see what was right in front of them. Let us not be like these people. Let us learn the lesson, as the apostolic scriptures enjoin upon us to do. Let us learn the lesson as we read through the Torah portions, not to turn a deaf ear to God's words, not to turn a blinded eye to his ways, to the miracles that he has performed in our lives, not to doubt him, and not to to be disobedient to him. Let's be obedient. Let's have faith. Let's turn to the commentary. Moshe takes this opportunity... Um, at the end of our book, to uh, recount each significant encampment along the way of their long and arduous journey. And in a way, his narrative in chapter 33 of Numbers here serves as a look back from where they've come, anticipating where they are headed. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the land and the tribes are in full view here. So what I want to do is I want to open our commentary by recalling some of the things that I stated in my Haftarah commentary to Parashat Matot. Now, as some of you may know, the Haftarah commentary is not made available to regular readers of the website. In fact, the Haftarah commentary, if you're listening to this podcast, I want you to listen up. The Haftarah commentary is not even made available on the internet. You must subscribe to my weekly portions, and personally receive the Haftorah portion commentary from me. That's my um, that's my 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 uh, impetus to try to get people to um, uh, to subscribe to the Torah portions. And, you know, the subscription doesn't cost anything, um, and so whether you subscribe or not, you're going to be able to read the Torah portions. But I want people to subscribe so that I can give them the Haftorah commentary as well. So, as you know, it's not available. It's only made available to those who people who subscribe to the Torah portion. But as a treat. <clears throat> In this opening, to Parashat Masa A, I'm going to use some of my material from my previous Haftarah commentary. And after that, I'm going to go back over each of the previous nine commentary portions to Bibi Bar and construct a summary of the whole book. Kind of like an overview. I've, I've done this in other books before. To my knowledge, I think I've done it at the, as the very last Torah portion in each um, book. Uh, I think I did it in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and now I'm going to do it here in Numbers. Kind of like a comprehensive summary of the entire book using material from my own commentary portions, okay? Let's pull a quote from uh, the Haftarah to uh, Matot first. Quote, By faith, Avraham, when called to go to a... <clears throat> excuse me. Let's try that again. By faith, Avraham, when... Uh, well, Abraham, because I'm reading out of the New International Version. Let me try that. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. End quote. That's taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 8 through 10 out of the New International Version. Now, as we notice from a reading of Parashat Masa'e, and I hope you are reading the Torah portions, the land is in full view here, and Hashem is preparing to have the people go in and take possession of their promise. But in our Western mindset, the challenge is that it's easy to overlook just what the glorious promise made to Abraham or Abraham, um, what what it was. What was the promise? You know, in the in the above quoted verse from uh, from the book of Hebrews, 
What exactly was it that God was promising to Abraham? What was it? What was it that Abraham was looking forward to? Was it um, just some far-off, distant heavenly land that he would only be able to experience in his life to come as a spiritual child of God? Is that what Abraham was looking forward to? I think it's um, it's it's kind of sad that too often, again within standard Christian circles, too often we we would answer. Uh, in the affirmative to this particular question. Oh yes, Abraham was looking for the heavenly land. The earthly didn't matter. But you know what? That wouldn't be entirely accurate. I will agree that Abraham saw more to the promise than what this earth entails. But it's not quite accurate to say that Abraham was not looking for a physical piece of real estate. And in fact, it would be a damage. It, it would be damage, actually. We, we actually do damage to the literal aspect um, that back in Genesis chapter 12 God was indeed making a covenant with a literal man to become a literal people. If we don't allow for the text to be referring to the literal piece of real estate, then we are going to misunderstand a, a good portion of the Torah itself, a good bulk of the scriptures. Okay, If we attempt to interpret this land as only referring to heaven, then we make the physical promise of no effect. Okay, Abraham was a real person, and he was going to become a real people. There were physical offspring, and as a result, these real people, as we're reading about in our Torah portion, would inherit a real piece of real estate, a literal piece of land. Sure, there are heavenly qualities to that land, as opposed to eventually, um, actually, I, I like to say that there are heavenly qualities that the land is supposed to eventually possess. You know, God speaks of Israel in, in high and lofty terms if you read through the prophets. God had great plans, lofty plans, for the land of Israel. And it is true that these particular qualities are lacking at this juncture in history. But you know what? That does not negate the fact that Hashem can and will bring his promises to Avram's offspring to pass one day. If we negate this fact then what ends up happening is we turn God into a liar. If we if we uproot the physical promises that God gave to Abraham and his children, then we turn God into a person. We talked about this in last week's Torah portion in uh, Parashat Matot. God is a man of his word. God is a, a, a... And if I can use the word man there, if you understand my illusion. God gives promises, and God makes sure those promises are going to come to pass. God makes vows. God takes oaths. And God is going to make sure on his word we are the unfaithful ones if we don't walk into the promises it's not God's fault it's our fault proof is right here in the Torah portion a whole generation had to die off as a result of the judgment that they brought upon themselves because of lack of faith God is true we are the ones who lack the sages refer to the land and the time period where um, God's going to make fully uh, um, sure of his promises. The sages refer to this glorious future as the Olam Haba. The Olam Haba, the age to come. Uh, now in our theology, in Christian theology, we would equate this to the millennial period, the time of the millennium. Those of you who are who follow eschatology um, in time prophecy are aware of this term millennium. It's the thousand year reign where Messiah will be here on earth, ruling from where? According to the prophecies, he's going to be ruling from Jerusalem. Now, I don't quite fully understand how the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem are going to coincide in this end time. I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers there. I have an idea, but I don't have all the answers. But what we do know is that these promises were made to God's people. And if you have been grafted into Israel, if you have accepted the name of Yeshua as your Messiah, and you have a genuine relationship with God, then you have been included in these promises. So if you're going to opt out for a heavenly versus a physical, if you're going to say the heavenly Jerusalem is what matters and the earthly Jerusalem is of no importance, then what you're doing is you are disrupting your own promises you are, you, are, you are uprooting the promises made to you. Because when God says, Israel, these are your inheritances, these are your blessings, then those blessings go to you as well. You are part of Israel. 
The Tanakh is replete with passages describing a glorious dwelling place within the land of promise. For who? For Am Yisrael and others. The others who've been grafted in. The land is the very same location today where right now war and conquest are still rampant. But don't let that discourage you. Hashem will change all of that one day, Baruch Hashem. Yes, He will. And we have got to trust Him. We cannot do like ancient Israel did and say, It can't be done. It can't be won. It can't be gotten. There are too many giants in the land and we just can't go in. Don't make that mistake, people. Please. Trust Hashem. He can bring his promises to pass. And one day the land will drip with sweet wine. And we will see. The desert will blossom. The mountains will drip. When that day arrives, Avraham will truly rejoice to see his children nestled in the glorious promises of a faithful covenant-keeping God. Amen. Amen. In case you couldn't tell, I'm a Zionist. That's right. I believe that the land that God gave to Israel is theirs by divine right. No one can uproot the land from Israel. It's not theirs by virtue of her prowess or by virtue of her um, winning it over. Like you know, like some people groups move into another land and they defeat the, the inhabitants and then it's theirs. Israel owns the land by divine decree because God decreed that it is her land. Okay? In fact, I want to just turn back to Genesis chapter 13 real quick and just show you something. Actually, let me jump back to Genesis chapter 12. There are a few verses that I've highlighted in my Bible way back at this early stage that I want to call to your attention just so you can see if we are to understand these passages at their Peshat level, at the, at the literal understanding level, at the, at the basic level, then we must understand that God is promising Abraham piece of real estate, okay? The first pasuk, the first verse I want to highlight is chapter 12, verse 1. After the Lord told Avram to get out away from his country and away from his kinsmen and from his father's house, God says, go to the land that I will show you. Go to the land that I will show you. Abraham was expecting to see a physical piece of real estate. Whether or not the paradigm for the physical piece of real estate points to the heavenly at this point in time, is not important. Abraham needs to see a physical peace. God was not playing games with Abraham and saying, "Okay, start walking, and then you're going to fall into a trance, and you're going to I'm going to show you heaven. You're going to you're going to see see this this spiritual land." Okay, I'm not trying to compare the two. That's what I want you to see in my commentary today. We should not compare the physical against the spiritual. The physical is real, and the spiritual is real, and God was promising Abraham both. That's what we need to see. Look down to verse 5. It says, Avram took his wife Sarai, his brother's son Lot, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, as well as the people they had acquired in Haran. And then it says, in this last part, they set out for the land of Kina'an, and entered the land of Kina'an. Why would God take them to Kenan? That's Canaan, by the way. Why would God take them there if he was really just going to show them heaven? I mean, after all, he could have shown them heaven while they were still in Ur. No. God is, the, uh, it, it, God is showing Abraham that this land, Kenan, this is going to be your place. Now let's turn over to um, chapter 13 in Pasuk 4. All right? They are in Kenan, and God says to Avram, after Lot had moved away from him. Look around you from where you are. Look around from where you are. What is Abraham seeing, people? You answer the question. What is Abraham looking at? His physical eyes are beholding physical mountains, physical dirt, physical trees, physical rocks. He's looking at something. What does the text say? Look around from where you are to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Look at verse 15 of chapter 13 of Genesis. All the land you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Are you getting, beginning to see it now? Is Abraham ex Now keep in mind the passage that I just read out of the book of Hebrews, where it said he was... Let's go back and look at it again. 
It said, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And what does it say? By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, whose heirs were who were heirs of him of the same promise. Look at this last clause in the book of Hebrews. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now again, in standard Christian parlance, we typically equate this city with the heavenly Jerusalem that John sees coming down out of the heavens in the book of Revelation. And while it is true that the heavenly Jerusalem is the fullness of the promise made to Abraham, we cannot neglect the physical piece of real estate that exists today in the Middle East. That's the land, people. That's the land. And God is going to God's going to make good, and somehow he's going to cause that piece of real estate to blossom and to grow and to flourish just like he promised throughout the Torah and throughout the Tanakh. Look at Pasuk 17 in chapter 13 of Genesis. Verse 17 says, Get up and walk through the land and the breadth of the land, because I will give it to you. Again, Abraham is not walking around heaven just yet. It is not the earthly versus the heavenly. You're starting to see this picture over and over again. The same hermeneutic keeps popping up. It's not this versus that. In Hebrew, quite often, it's this and that. It's earthly and heavenly. And yes, one day the heavenly Jerusalem will come down and somehow coincide with the physical. I don't know exactly how that's going to be. I'm not... um, a subject matter expert there, but somehow it's going to happen. Look at uh, chapter 15 of Genesis. Look at Pasuk uh, 18. Quote, That day Adonai made a covenant with Abraham. Listen to what God says. I have given this land to your descendants, from the Vadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the territory of the Kini, I'm sorry, the Kini, the Kenitsi, the Kadmoni, the Hiti, the Puritsi, the Raphaim, the Emori, the Kinaani, the Girgashi, and the Yevusi. End quote. God uprooted the, the, the um, current inhabitants, the Canaanites, because they were ripe for destruction. God, in some mysterious way, I don't know. I don't know exactly how, he offered them repentance as well. They rejected it. God then says, "Fine, I'll uproot you, and I'm going to give this land to a man named Abraham." And so, the promises given to Abraham are going to come to pass, and we're seeing this in our current Torah portion at the very end of the book of Numbers in uh, Parashah Masae. And then finally, uh, one other verse I just want to highlight, and then we'll get back to my commentary. <clears throat> Chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 8, reads this way, quote, I will give you, this is God speaking to Abraham again, I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are now foreigners, all the land of the Kinaan, as a permanent possession and I will be their God. End quote. Did you see that phrase? As a permanent possession. When is God going to make good on these promises? When is God going to make good on these promises? Well, we're seeing part of it now. Many Jewish people, many Israelites, have returned to the land of Israel. And in our modern age, in the 21st century, many Jewish people reside there, as well as many people who have been grafted into Israel, I might add. <clears throat> However, the land is in turmoil. The land is not in peace. There is no shalom there. I don't believe that that's what God is promising Abraham in perpetuity. I'm going to give you land, oh, but by the way, it's never going to enjoy peace. No. We can't see that. We can't say that. We simply cannot accept as reality that that is what God promised Abraham. The current state of affairs in Israel today, the current political upheaval, or I'm sorry, the current political unrest, uh, and and all of the wars and the and and the, the military campaints and the, uh, uh, the 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 intifadas and things like that, all of that does not represent reality, at least on the biblical level. That does represent a struggle in the spiritual realm. Surely, as you read the news, and I'm not I'm not one to be very political, but just let me. Go in this direction for a split second. Surely as you read the news, you must understand that that represents a spiritual struggle. What's happening in the Middle East is not merely a result of two uh, brothers at war with one another. It's not merely um, the Arabs against the Jews. It's, it's simply more than that. Okay, it is, it is quite frankly more than that. 
And we've got to understand as we read our Bible that this is a spiritual struggle because when God promised to Abraham to give him a land in perpetuity, the adversary set out to make sure that that would not come to pass because I believe the adversary understands that the land represents something greater. If the children of Israel get the land, then God is true and everyone else is a liar. And the adversary doesn't want that to happen. If the children of Israel get the land then God's word is true, and the adversary is proven to be a defeated foe, and he does not want that. And so he's going to do everything he can to make sure that the children of Israel do not get that which God promised to Papa Abraham. And so the war rages on. But don't be discouraged. God has already promised, if you want to read through the end of the book, God has already promised that he will defeat the enemies of Israel. So if you want to be on the right side today, people, whether you are part of the church or not, whether you believe in Yeshua or not, you need to be in Israel. I don't mean to be in the physical land. I mean you need to be in the people called Israel. Get yourself grafted in if you're not already part of Israel, okay? That's the point. Let's go back now and capture a bird's eye view of the entire book of Numbers using the parashot that I've written, okay? Um, I don't think this is going to be a long commentary again today. If I just read through it and not stop to comment very often, then I think we'll probably have about a 40 or 50 minute commentary, and we'll just call it one part, okay? So we're at about 25 minutes now into the portion, and uh, I believe I can just read through this, and you can listen along and follow along. If you've got the written commentary, that's fine, but if you don't, just listen along. And uh, we're just going to get a bird's eye view of the book of Numbers using my own commentaries, okay? Amazingly, as we're going to see, The book is about wandering in the desert under the divine judgment of Hashem, only to be placed, watch this, right where they started from, which was where? At the entrance to the land. It's just like I said last week in the Torah portion, the Parashat Matot, wandering, 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 going around in circles. God gives us a place that he's taking us to. God makes promises, and he shows it to us, and it's right across the river. And in Israel's case, it really was just right across the Jordan. But because they did not go in when God said go in, they they murmured, they complained, they demonstrated a lack of faith in God. God made them do an about-face, and they wandered around the desert for 38 years until they died. And the next generation had to come right back to this place again, where on the east side of the Jordan poised to go in. It is a shame that the first generation had to die off. It's really sad. So, let's read an overview of the book of um, Bamidbar using the Torah portions and the commentaries that I've written, okay? The first Torah portion was Parashat Bamidbar. And here's what I had to say. This book, whose English name comes from the fact that the initial chapters begin with a census taken of the entire assembly of Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, picks up where Shemot Exodus leaves off, with Am Yisrael camped at the base of Har Sinai, at the Mount of Sinai. From here, the people journeyed into the wilderness, into Bimidbar, uh, the wilderness of Paran, south of the Promised Land. Scouts were sent to explore the land and give a report of its inhabitants. And when they returned to their camp, their report was not favorable, and the people began to doubt Hashem's ability to give them their inheritance. And what did they do? They complained against him. So as we've read and as we've learned in our Sunday school lessons, because of their sin, God condemned them to wander in the wilderness until the generation of covetors, that generation of the complainers, they died off and a new generation took their place. Forty years later, they slowly made their way back to Kina'an, to Canaan. This time, however, they were broken and they were ready to obey the mitzvot of Adonai. After winning some important campaigns east of the Yarden River, the Jordan, Am Yisrael prepared to enter the heart of the promised land they had waited so long to see. In the next Torah portion of Bamidbar, in Parashat Naso, we talked about this. The census of the first few chapters of Bamidbar continues into the chapter 4 of this portion. What was Hashem doing? Well, he was masterfully preparing his army which would go into the promised land and take possession of it for him and for themselves. The census also regulates certain chosen individuals who would be needed to uh, disassemble, transport, and then reassemble the portable house of God, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, remember? 
the Gershon and Murari families were singled out to uh, to carry the tabernacle. Chapter 5 of Numbers spells out certain regulations concerning relationships between men and women, specifically between husband and wife. And uh, interesting to note is the phenomenon of the spirit of jealousy which may come over the man in verse 14 of Numbers of uh, chapter 5 in the event that his wife is unfaithful without his direct knowledge. What is this mysterious jealousy that the Torah mentions? Well, we didn't we weren't dogmatic in our answer, but what I believe as a commentator, as a Torah teacher, is that this testifies of the unique and mysterious oneness or the unity, the echad that even Rabbi Shaul spoke of in the renewed covenant. You see, when Hashem joins husband and wife, they share the same basar, the same flesh. I believe that the Holy One, blessed be He, preserves the holy union of two individuals made one by giving them divine insight into matters of fidelity. That the union of husband and wife is of great sanction is evidenced from a general examination of the Talmud, which we looked at. What the Torah had to say about marriage and faithfulness left an indelible mark in the minds of the sages of antiquity. So, that's what we talked about in Parashat Naso. Next, we move forward into Parashat Bahalotcha. The Torah frequently employs the use of word pictures. Now, what these are is uh, their phrases and words coined for the explicit purpose of calling the reader's attention to a certain truth of the understanding of Hashem and His purposes among mankind. When the Torah uses the word anoint, for example, the picture that is painted is of a horn of oil, presumably olive oil, um, being poured out and down upon an individual. When you hear this word, anoint. For instance, in the case of the high priest Aharon, the Torah describes the oil as being poured upon his head as an anointing. You can read that in Exodus chapter 29, verse 7. In our um, Haftarah to Ba'alotcha, which you can see, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 7, we again read of this anointing property of the oil and of the Spirit. I can almost imagine as I read these passages, seeing the oil as it runs down Aharon's head, down his face, as, as Moshe keeps pouring, it's going into his beard and down his shoulders as Moshe makes sure of the God-given instructions. The oil is a representation of the Spirit of Adonai, the oil is a physical representation of the spiritual reality. The Torah is explicitly teaching us that the office of Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, cannot function properly without the supernatural anointing from the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's move on. In Parashat Shlach Lecha, we read about that... Um, uh, well, let me just read my commentary. This portion that we looked at avidly demonstrates the awesome mercy and judgment of our Heavenly Abba. These are themes that run side by side throughout the Torah. We have mercy and judgment right side by side. And the choices are ours. If we follow God's ways and, and fall on His mercy, then blessings follow. But if we oppose God, then judgment and, and lack of blessings are going to be um, our reward. Opponents of the grace of the Old Testament, you've heard these people say that there's no grace in the Old Testament. I think it's a dying, um, it, it's a dying breed of people who believe that, unfortunately for us, because it's not true. There's much grace throughout the entire Bible. After all, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But people who, oppo who oppose the grace of the Old Testament are hard-pressed to explain away the merciful actions of God in chapters in chapter 14, verses 5-20 through 20 of the book of Numbers. Because God was going to wipe them out, and Moshe intercedes time and time again for the people of Israel, and God stays his hand of judgment. Oh yes, he punishes them. But instead of wiping them out completely, he merely uh, destroys a portion of them. So, judgment and mercy, again, demonstrated side by side. Surely the disobedient, unfaithful bunch of them deserved Hashem's punishment. Yet again, at Moshe's pleading, Hashem stayed his severe ruling and instead mercifully gave them an object lesson that they should never forget. Remember, God, time and time again, was within his rights 
to wipe them out. And yet he didn't. The rest of the Torah would draw from this event in this particular parasha for the successive generations to witness. Indeed, that was Hashem's purpose for treating them thusly. You can read chapter 14 of Numbers, verses... Um, Oh, what is it, 34? Let me look at it again real quick here. Numbers chapter uh, 14. I just want to turn to it. Verse 34 through... Uh, it reads, um, quote, It will be for a year for every day that you spent reconnoitering in the land that you will bear the consequences of your offenses. Forty days, forty years. Then you will know what it means to oppose me. Verse 35. I, Adonai, have spoken. I will certainly do this to this whole evil community who have assembled together against me. They will be destroyed in this desert and die there. Um, let's see. I suppose it's uh, verse 34 and um, maybe verse 35. I have a typo in my commentary. I need to correct there. Okay. In fact, this particular incident that we're reading about where they wandered through the desert, if you remember the Brit Hadashah, the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, it mentions this incident. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Quote, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, which again, Hebrews is actually quoting a book of Psalms, right? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quote, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and uh, said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. End quote. That's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. However, the writer of the book of Hebrews is quoting from uh, the book of Psalm chapter 95, verse 7 through 11. So it's interesting that um, this is an object lesson that the people of Israel would never forget. The really sad part about this incident in the Parashat Shalach Lecha is that it was the very same adult generation that witnessed um, that, that witnessed the wonders of Egypt, right? These are the people who saw the miracles. These are the people that Hashem is speaking about here. The very same individual saw the fiery law, which went forth at Mount Sinai. The very same crowd was familiar with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And, and, and I just don't understand. What, what were they looking at? They were looking at the miraculous. They were seeing the very glory of God, and they still doubted his power to go in and take the land for them. And that portion closed with Judaism's first mitzvah concerning the tzitzit, that is, the tassel that adorns a modern, observant Jewish person's clothing. Chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, clearly teaches the offspring of Abraham to attach a ribbon of blue to the corner, the Hebrew word is kanaf for corner, they were to attach a ribbon of blue to their garments. So that was a good portion there. Let's move on. In Parashat Korach, this is the telling of the story of the disloyalty of Korach, son of a Levite, and that rebellious bunch that followed him. And I call it disloyalty, owing to the fact that this complaint of Korach's was an audience designed to address the current leadership of Moshe and Ah of Aharon. However, as we read the story, Knowing Korach's heart, we really shouldn't call it disloyalty. A better suited term might be open mutiny. A summary of the story went like this. Korach and followers from the leaders of Am Yisrael challenged the authority of Moshe and Aharon, accusing the two brothers of lording over the people. You remember? Moshe's response was divine. He instructs them, no, he challenges them to an authoritative proof test. Since the human factor of choosing leadership in the eyes of Korach is obviously faulty, well then let's let God choose the appropriate man for the job. Since you think I, I made a mistake, let's let God do the choosing. And you know what? That's exactly what God did in that portion. The remainder of the parashah described the various priestly functions with the community while outlining some of the privileges and inheritance afforded to the Leviim, the priests. Moving on in Parashat Hukat, uh, Parashat Hukat was the uh, Torah portion that had the ashes of the red heifer, the Para Aduma. And if you remember, this mitzvah of the red heifer was a peculiar commandment indeed. I mean, th there are a couple of details that make this mitzvah unique, this commandment. To begin with, the participants who, who put together the mixture... They are commanded to slaughter and burn completely this female cow without a blemish. That's what para aduma means, red cow. If you'll recall from reading Vaikra, 
touching a dead animal's carcass rendered one ritually unclean. If you touched a um, a, a carcass, um, then you were rendered you you, you became tamei. You were unclean. You were a tuma. And as we discover, discover from this portion in Parashat Chukat, uh, at chapter 19, verses 7 through 22, the preparation of the ashes also rendered the individuals involved tamay. Yet, the end result of their efforts produced a substance that possessed the supernatural ability to cleanse as Hashem endowed it. That's what makes this a, a very, very strange mitzvah. True, the real healing always comes from Hashem. We understand that. But in this case... The focal point of the healing, that is to say the ash mixture, began by actually defiling those who made the mixture. Peculiar indeed, don't you think? Well, what we did is we learned a very important uh, lesson. Herein lies the secret of faith. To follow Hashem's instructions to the letter was to act and live in an arena of trusting faithfulness. To do what the Torah asked sometimes required its participants to perform various rituals and functions that defy logic and common sense. Life from death, how can it be? Only the will of Hashem could produce such an effect. And the ultimate paradox is Yeshua himself, life from death. Particularly, we see this demonstrated graphically in Yeshua. If that piques your curiosity, go back and read Parashat Chukat. It was a very good commentary. Moving right along in my own commentary here, we uh, encounter Parashat Balach. Now, our opening sequence has Balach, which is the king of Moab, of Moab, seeking a way to destroy the seemingly unstoppable and numerous people of Israel. Based on his observation of their might because of their sheer numbers, he decides, I believe, that a military campaign is futile. He's just not going to attack them. He decides to fight fire with fire because he perceives that Israel has a supernatural anointing upon them. It's not just their sheer numbers. There's something, there's something unseen about these people of Israel. So he goes to fire with fire and he hires the top pagan prophet of his day, Bilam, whose English name shows up in your Bibles as Balaam. Now, Bilam is a peculiar man. Here's a prophet who hears, converses, and knows the ineffable name of Hashem, yet he does not follow the ways of Hashem's Torah. How can this be? Occasionally, we've observed that in the Torah, to our seeming dismay, God actually converses with unbelieving pagans. And in these dialogues, I believe we catch a glimpse of the incredible nature of our God and is dealing not only with the Jewish nation, but with other people groups as well. God is kind of giving us little hints to the truth that he is interested in the people surrounding Israel. He's not just out to preserve Israel, destroy everyone else. He's actually uh, devising a plan where he's going to bring the peoples of the world into the nation of Israel and call them one people, Am Yisrael. I believe that even the greedy Bilam could have found a place in the community of God's called out ones. But as we saw, he chose a different course for himself. And so thus, we learned of the power of blessing. Okay, How did the people fall in the story? They withstood the curses. The, every time Bilam opened his mouth, instead of a curse, a blessing came out. That's what we read. So how did the people fall? Well, I like to say they got sucker punched. They got hit from their blind side. And I've seen this lesson enacted in my own life all too well. In fact, all too recently. I brace myself for the attack from the adversary. I build up my armor and where I think the attack is going to come from. From the adversary or, or my own flesh. And just when I think I'm successful, bam, I get hit from the blind side. You've done this before as well. Israel fell, fell prey to their lustful passions, which, by the way, was their blind side. They simply could not say no to idolatry. And so they engaged in that which God had forbade. And as a result, God's judgment came down upon them. The blessing of the Lord was their strong side. And blessed be the Holy One for that. But it just goes to show us that we all have weaknesses in areas that sometimes we least suspect. And because of that, we are all in need of the supernatural protection of Almighty Hashem. Let's continue. 
in Parashat Pinchas, um, we, we, we met a very important person, Pinchas, the grandson of Aharon, the high priest. Pinchas was a man of holiness. And Pinchas is a man who left a, an impression on many of the biblical writers, especially in the Talmud. Uh, we find um, a, a great uh, deal given over to Pinchas. In his letter to the congregation at Rome, Shaul addressed the important issue of Jew and Gentile head-on in chapter 11. Now, um, his, his resulting commentary there would be later known as Olive Tree Theology, owing to the fact that he graphically points out that the objects of jealousy and cursing are actually the root which is supporting the tree in the first place. Do you remember reading uh, about that in uh, Romans chapter 11? Now on this note he cautions the existing branches not to become proud or boastful against the root that is supporting them. But what ends up happening is in our haste sometimes we arrogantly think that we have come this far by our faith in Yeshua alone and that we don't need further support. Okay, um, we we think to ourselves that uh, we we we've arrived. We don't need help from the root that's supporting us. That's why I always say in my commentaries that I'm 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 pleased for those of you who are not of Jewish stock to be interested in the Jewish root that supports you. And even to that end, people remind me, Ariel, the roots are not Jewish. And yet, I read through the book of Romans, and I understand Paul's allusion to the root as being Jewish, because it says, don't boast against the branches. And if the root were Yeshua, in the Romans chapter 11, why would he have to warn Gentile believers against boasting against Yeshua? That doesn't make any sense. In fact, let me just turn and read it, because I know some of you aren't familiar with it. And, and this has relevance to Parsha Pinkas, so just bear with me. Let me turn to Romans chapter 11 here. And in chapter 11, <clears throat> uh, starting in Pasuk 13, we read Paul's words. He says, and he's speaking, we know he's speaking to Gentiles because he says it. Quote, However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that someday I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy. Who are, who are, let me just pause. Who are Paul's own people when he says my own people? Remember, he's speaking to Gentiles. So who are his own people? that he's trying to provoke jealousy? He's speaking of Jews. Now keep in mind these are sociological terms, Jew and Gentile. He's using the term Jew to mean non-Gentile. And he's using the term Gentile to mean non-Jew. Sociological terms. Even though tip, even though reality, the Greek word ethnos, which is rendered Gentiles here, and the Hebrew word goyim, which is, or ger, which is rendered, rendered stranger, or, or goy, goy, which is rendered um, someone from the nations, really includes Israel, because we're all from some nation. But Paul says, let me pick up in verse 14 again, in the hope that someday I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now look at verse 16. Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, the challah, by the way, is the dough, is the bread. If the challah, which is Sabbath bread, is offered as first fruits is holy, and keep in mind the challah was offered on the on, on Pentecost. It was it was um, dough that had leaven in it. It was it was puffy bread, as opposed to the matzah that was offered on um, on Pesach. You following the differences there? If the challah offered as fruits, fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. Let me just pause and say that there's this commandment given in the Torah that the first portion of any offering belongs to Adonai. The first uh, reaping of our field, the first fruits of the uh, harvest, of the, both the wheat and the barley harvest, or I should say the barley and the wheat. The Passover is a barley harvest, and the first fruits is a wheat harvest. And um, so Shavuot, when they were offering up the, the, the wheat harvest, um, the first fruits, the, the Bikurim that was brought to the, to the priest in, in the Mishkan or the temple, was signifying that this first belongs to God. We talked about that in the commentary to the uh, festival of both um, Pesach, Hamatzah, and the commentary to um, um, Umar Reshit, as well as the commentary to um, Shavuot. Go back and read those. They're available on the web if you're unfamiliar. So Paul's building on this theology. The challah offered as first fruits is holy. Now who is the challah? That's my point. He says, if the challah is offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. 
Well, in his analogy of the tree, the branches that he's referring to are the Gentiles who've been grafted into the existing tree. And so the root that he's referring to in contradistinction to the Gentiles must be the existing Jewish people. Now it's true that the sap running through the root is the Spirit of God, the Messiah himself. That is true. The sap, the nourishment that keeps the root alive, that keeps the branches alive, that keeps the entire tree alive is the Spirit of God himself. But the root are the Jewish people who, who, whom God first called out. They are the challah offered as first fruits up to God to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's exactly what Paul says over and over again throughout the book of Romans to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In that limited use of terms, Jew first and then Greek, the challah is the Jew and the, um, the rest of the loaf is the branches that are being brought in a.k.a. the Gentiles. The root are the Jewish people, and the branches being brought into the root or grafted into the tree are the Gentiles. Are you following my examples now? Now, in this setting, Paul warns them, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, now when he says some of the branches, he refers to Jewish branches, some of the branches. Because remember, the tree is natural, and then the wild olive branches get grafted into the natural tree. So they get grafted in among existing natural branches. So if some of the branches, speaking of these natural branches, were broken off, and you, there's the comparison, a wild olive branch, I might add the word branch even though it's not in the text, you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them. Who's the them? The them is the existing Jewish branches. I have to say this over and over again because I get emails from people who say, Ariel, you keep saying that, that Gentiles are grafted into a Jewish olive tree. And they disagree. But I'm reading it right here in Paul's letter. Paul says, you were grafted in among them. Who's the them? The them is the existing Jewish tree, the existing Israelites. Okay, The metaphor is quite clear. You were grafted among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree. The root is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Then don't, no, 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 with this warning, look what Paul says. If you were grafted in and have become equal sharers in the rich root, right? Then look at verse 18. This is the mysterious verse. Then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you are not supporting the root. The root is supporting you, end quote. Now let me just ask you the question. If the root is Jesus, like I've heard many Christians say, the root of the olive tree is Jesus, then why would Paul have to warn the Gentile believers in chapter 11, verse 18, not to boast against the root, I'm sorry, against the branches, thinking that they are supporting the root? What kind of message is Paul trying to say to Gentile believers not to boast against the root who is Jesus? Warning them that they don't support the root, but the, that the root supports them? I've never heard any pastor teach that Christians have to be warned against, that, that, that they are supporting Jesus, and that a pastor has to warn the Christians that no, 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 you don't support Jesus, Jesus supports you. That's a nonsensical message. Instead, we have to let history speak for itself. And history has shown that historically, Gentile believers came to the incorrect conclusion that they have overtaken Israel and that they have uprooted the root and that they are now the true Israel and that they are now the replacement. They are now the true tree and that Israel has been discarded. That is truth. That is history. Replacement theology, supersessionism, um, all of these things are historical facts and this is exactly what Paul's warning is. So, Going back to my commentary, we're at about 50 minutes into the commentary, and so it looks like I am going to have a part A and a part B. Let me just finish up this part with the Parshat Pinchas, and then with part B we'll start with, um, uh, will we start with Parshat Matot? You know what? If you guys will allow me, I think I'll go ahead and make it one part, and it'll just be basically like an hour long, so I won't go, I won't go into two parts. Let's just keep going, all right? In Parshat Pinchas. All right. We read that uh, Paul 
Well, let me just read my commentary. Paul cautions the existing branches not to become proud or boastful against the root that is supporting them. And in our haste, we sometimes, uh, we, we arrogantly think that we, 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 the Christian church, have come this far by our faith in Yeshua alone and that we don't need further support from anyone else, Israel or otherwise. How foolish this mindset is and that it runs counter to the plans of Hashem. He, God, has predetermined in his gracious foreknowledge that Avraham's offspring would forever be the recipient of the covenant blessing of Hashem and that, and, and that try as they would, anyone playing the part of Bilam would forever meet with disappointment and failure. The actions of Pinchas demonstrate for us those whose hearts are spiritually in tune with the purposes of Hashem in ridding the community of the effects of this world's Bilams. And that's how I tied it in. People like Bilam try to disrupt the community, try to break apart the community, so that people like Balak, the evil king of Moab, can go in and destroy the community of Israel. Anyone who would try to divide the community and say that Jews and Gentiles are separate, that, that, that there's no room for the community to come together, are greedy like Bilam. They're seeking their own greedy gain. The gross effect of the jealousy and greed of history's Bilams and their attempts at cursing are still noticeable today. Our community is rife with ignorance concerning thinking lowly of Abraham's seed. Yet thanks be unto our God that we have seen our share of Pincus's as well. Pincus, the man of holiness, who goes in and steps in and plays the part of God's righteous right arm to to rid the the community of the evils that whether they whether they um um whether they spring up within our own community or whether they are a threat from outside the community we need our pinchases we need our our men of holiness to step up take a stand for God's word and protect our communities let's move on barashat matot here in our Torah portion which was last week's uh, portion Moshe gives instructions from the tongue of Hashem, no pun intended, the tongue, you get it? Because we talk about vows in the Parashat Matot. Um, as we read in this Torah portion as to some certain vows and oaths and what the details uh, are entailed there. And I didn't go into the details of each vow in my Torah portion, but what I did um, is I made a correction to a common misunderstanding related to these passages. You see, in our Torah portion, Moshe clearly allows for vows and oaths to be taken by individuals. This, by the way, includes, by context, the familiar Nazarite vows spoken of at other places in the Torah. But in our misunderstanding of Torah concepts, we, some, we sometimes see a contradiction of this passage in uh, Parashat Matot with a well-known phrase spoken by Yeshua in the Brit Chadashah. Our passage in question was taken from Matat Yahu chapter 5, verse 31 through 37, and the setting is Yeshua's own halakha, which is why his halakha, by the way, is his manner of um, Torah interpretation. Uh, involving uh, practical application. That's, that's what halakha is. Halakha is the proper way in which to walk out Torah. And so Yeshua is giving us his halakha, and it's in this uh, uh, um, portion of the New Testament known as the Beatitudes. What happens is Yeshua's teaching here is an admonition to uphold the validity of one's own word, even to the simple form of a yes or a no. You don't have to swear. You don't have to make promises. Just follow through with what you say. This is made clear by his closing remarks to his listening audience in verse 37 of chapter 5 of Matthew there. In other words, far from abolishing the importance or application of odes as spelled out by Moshe, Yeshua is actually strengthening the bond that goes into effect once a person places himself under such obligations. You see, Yeshua is not uprooting Moshe. He is strengthening Moshe. To be sure, his halakha centers on the fact that that a simple yes or no actually carries the same weight as a more complicated vow or an oath, okay? And with that, we conclude our overview of the book of Numbers, because now we are in um, Parashat Masa'e. So, this last section is entitled Conclusions, and with this, I'm going to close the book of Numbers, okay? From here until the ending of Bin Midbar, the subject of land and tribes is in full view. I want you to go back and read the passages in the book of in the end of the book of Numbers and remember what I talked about at the beginning of this commentary. God promised a physical land 
to a physical people group. Hashem is preparing the desert-weary people for entering into their long-awaited inheritance. After 40 years of wandering under the divine judging hand of the Almighty, coupled with over 400 years in physical, mental, and every way spiritual bondage in a foreign land, the descendants of Abraham are finally ready to have a land of their own. Thus, from this compilation, we've seen that the 40 years of wandering is really a very, very sad note in the history of Israel. Why? Because it robbed them, that wicked generation who had to die in the wilderness, it robbed them of what by covenant belonged to them through their father Abraham. You see, had they not forfeited by lack of faith, many of the incidents in the book of Numbers may never have occurred. Of course, that's hypothetically. I don't know how God would have played it out, but if they would have gone in in that first initial um, um, uh, scouting incident, if they would have gone in and taken the land, perhaps many of the other incidents may not have happened. I don't know. It's speculation. Even so, we become very familiar with the 40 years of wandering that the people eventually had to endure as a result of their doubt. And it is a very important lesson for us today. The Bible teaches us today, both Jews and Gentiles grafted into Messiah, that each incident recorded was for our example. That we might learn from previous mistakes. We do not have to make the same mistakes as people gone before us. We can read of their mistakes and we can then be encouraged to walk into the promises of God. We don't have to walk into the same mistakes that people before us have done to learn the object lessons that God is trying to teach them. We can use their wisdom to our advantage and as a result we can be even wiser as we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. It is a shame when people fail. All of us fall from time to time and all of us need prayer. And for that reason, we need to continue to support one another. We need to remind each other of the truths of God's word. We need, we, we need to uplift one another. We need to, we need to build one another up. As we see our fellow person stumbling, don't just keep marching forward in your own path and saying, oh well, too bad for my brother Joe. I guess he's fallen by the wayside. I better keep going because I, I don't have time to stop. I can't look out for him. I got to look out for myself. No, 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 people. That's wrong. We've got to support one another in this journey because we all have, have weaknesses that we succumb to from time to time. And so I, I'm going to just say it right now. I ask for your own prayers. I'm currently going through a, a difficult time in my own life and in my, in my own marriage. And uh, as a result, I've decided to um, accept some, some, some more scaling back, as it were, of ministries that, that, that I've, I've been involved in. Uh, there are other areas of ministry that I'm going to pull back from uh, as of yet, so that I can focus on my own goals, priorities, and most importantly, my own marriage to my wife. I don't want that union to dissolve. And so please pray for me as I seek to continue to strengthen my walk with God as a Torah teacher, as a man of faith, and also seek to become a better husband to my precious wife, Suki, from South Korea. The number 40 signals trials testing, endurance, and sometimes punishment. And so I want to close out this commentary with a quote from the Stone Edition Tanakh, which has this to say about the book of Bimidbar. I don't have the exact um, page where I pulled the quote from. I don't remember, but let's just uh, let me use the quote, and then I'll close the commentary, okay? You've been patient. It's been an hour, and uh, um, um, I'm just going to leave off with this. Quote, The book of Numbers begins and ends with Israel on the verge of entering its land. But the 38 intervening years of wandering in the wilderness were a low point in Jewish history. This book contains the episodes of the spies who poisoned the minds of the people, the rebellion of Korah and his assembly, and the error of Moshe and Aharon that cost them the privilege of entering the land. But it also ends with the first step in the conquest of the land of Israel. End quote. And with that, I want to remind you that it is customary after the completion of a book of the Torah to say, Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Chazak. Be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. Amen. Amen. 
The closing blessing is as follows. Barukata Adonai Lohenu Melaka Olam Asherunatan Lanu Torate Met Vechaye Olam Natabatochinu Barukata Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.